Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper. And I am the other host, Aaron Maté. How are you, Katie? I'm good. You? I'm well. We've got a great show for you today. Oh my God, we have... Legend. Legend Noam Chomsky. Yes. The greatest to ever do it, really. So good. Will be gracing us with his presence. And he has a new book with Vijay Prashad, another uh, recent Useful Idiots guest called yep. Withdrawal. We'll talk about all right, so should we just get into the, uh, where do you want to start? Should we start with the four basic food groups? Let's do it. And I have All Democrats right. suck, and there's always so many choices. For example, so many. pretty much every week now, there's a new arms package announced for Ukraine. This week was the biggest one yet, $3 billion in uh, zero effort towards diplomacy. So, But that is such a common Democrat suck that we have to change it up. So, right. Let's turn to another uh, target of U.S. militarism, and that's Syria, where the U.S. Uh, just carried out a bombing and killed uh, several uh, people who were members of Iranian forces there and their allies. And this is the latest in a series of U.S. bombings inside Syria, uh, which the U.S. claims is in self-defense. It's just strange because the U.S. is occupying Syria. So the best way for the U.S. to defend itself in Syria is to leave Syria. But... Trita Parsi, who is a very astute commentator and with the Quincy Institute, he explains the real motive behind uh, this U.S. strike in Syria. And this is what he says. Besides retaliating for earlier attacks, two additional possible reasons why Biden strikes Iran-affiliated groups, just as the U.S. is likely to rejoin the JCPOA. So this attack on Iranian forces in Syria comes just as the U.S. and Iran are so close to restoring the Iran nuclear deal, or at least that's what we're being told. And that's the hope. So this is what Trita Parsi says about that. Israel is pressing Biden not to rejoin the JCPOA. If Biden stands firm, he'll likely give a concession to Israel. This might be it. So basically, sorry, Israel, we're going to redo this deal with Iran that we broke, but we're going to break you off with a strike against against Iran inside Syria as compensation. That's the logic here that Trita is laying out. Uh, and on that point, Trita Parsi then says, secondly, fearful that a return to the JCPOA will make him look weak and soft on Iran, Biden might be bombing Syria to assert the opposite. So basically, that's the logic behind uh, the U.S. bombing someone in a country it's occupying. Do Israel a favor, you know, break them off of something to compensate for our horrible diplomacy that Israel doesn't like, and then make Biden look strong in the process, not weak, because it'd be weak not to kill people in a country that we're occupying. Well, Biden is a proud Zionist. Yes. So we shouldn't be surprised by this. Yeah, he's staying true to his his faith, which is uh, uh, propping up Israel and serving its hegemonic goals, which means, uh, you know, killing Iranians. Right. It's not just killing Palestinians anymore. Oh yeah, no sure. Uh, yeah. Israel has many targets that are right. It's really tar- it's, yeah. it's really branched out. I shouldn't say anymore. It's been branched out for a while now. Oh yeah, no, yeah. this is there's my answer from the start. Bias, right? Yeah, from the start. It's yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Israel. I I just underestimated you. <laughs> I smeared you by suggesting that you were more focused in your crimes against humanity. <laughs> so I want to apologize. Oh no, it's very diverse. Yeah, it is. Iranians, uh, Palestinians, Syrians, Syrians, Palestinians. Yeah. 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 Lebanese. Lebanese. Oh, of course. That's a huge. Of course. Yeah. A huge target. So that's Democrats suck. All right. Well, for Republicans suck, let's just listen to this story uh, that is up at Democracy Now. 
Back in the United States, Louisiana state bond commissions withholding nearly $40 million in funding for flood control in New Orleans after the state's Republican attorney general objected to city officials' opposition to Louisiana's strict abortion ban. The funding is meant to pay for drainage pumps critical to protecting New Orleans from flooding and rising sea levels due to the climate crisis. Attorney General Jeff Landry successfully pushed commissioners to withhold the funds as punishment after New Orleans City Council passed a resolution asking law enforcement officers not to enforce Louisiana's near-total abortion ban, which does not include exemptions for rape or incest. This comes after a Baton Rouge resident, who was 10 weeks pregnant, was denied an abortion at a Louisiana hospital, even though an ultrasound showed her fetus was developing without a skull. The condition, known as a crania, does not appear on a list of accepted conditions for an abortion in Louisiana. So that's a really great one because it's just well-rounded. Uh, Republicans suck. So basically, no, if you are pro-choice, uh, you do not get your pumps drained and uh, you don't get protection from flooding and rising sea levels. Yeah. Who would have thought that someone could make that connection? But I guess Republicans found a way to do it. Yeah. Can you imagine being an attorney general, like have gone, having gone to law school? I mean, I know this is what am I saying? Because there's so many evil uh, jurists out there looking yeah. at the Supreme Court. But it's just insane. Imagine using your legal authority to push commissioners to withhold funds as punishment because the New Orleans City Council passed a resolution encouraging law enforcement not to enforce Louisiana's near total abortion ban. And... Again, this abortion ban does not include exemptions for rape or incest. And just to see an example of how this plays out uh, outside of the rape and incest, it also uh, doesn't allow uh, exceptions for cases of diseases or conditions like a crania. So if your fetus is going to be born without a skull, tough for you. You're shit out of luck. That is just dark. Let us start. Yeah, well, so a very Republicans fucking suck. A very chilling Republican suck. I hope this guy gets flooded <laughs> with toxic water. I hope he loses his home. That would be good. That would make me believe in God if that happened. <laughs> anyway, so that's my Republican suck. All right. So for isn't that weird? Uh, I'm heading back to Democrat land because uh, this to me is a weird one. Um, interesting primaries in New York where. Because congressional districts were redrawn, you had longtime lawmakers facing off against each other, including Jerry Nadler facing off against Carolyn Maloney. And these are two, you know, old pros. They've been around Capitol Hill for a long time. I presume they're friendly or they know each other at least. But this race between them got really, really nasty. And Nadler ultimately prevailed. So congratulations to yeah. a short king, you know, oh, yeah, I honor him for that. But uh it got nasty, and Carolyn Maloney went out with some zingers. First of all, in the final days of the race, she suggested that Jerry Nadler, her congressional Democrat colleague, was senile. Let's watch this clip. Campaigned on the Upper East Side Saturday, and when asked about Nadler, seemed to question his faculties. I think that you should uh, read the editorial in the New York Post today. They call him senile. They cite his uh, performance at the debate where he couldn't even remember who he was, who he impeached. He said he impeached Chuck Bush. So that's Carolyn Maloney calling her uh, longtime colleague uh, senile, uh, Gerald Nadler. And this came after 
if you if you saw this, Katie, she had said in a debate with Nadler that she doesn't think Joe Biden is running again. And we have that clip as well. Right. Should President Biden run again in 2024? Yes. Mr. Nadler. Too early to say it doesn't serve the purpose of the Democratic Party to to deal with that until after the midterms. Ms. Maloney. I don't believe he's running for re-election. So Carolyn Maloney, you know, on her way out, just firing shots at these uh, geriatric Democratic leaders like yeah, Biden and Nadler. So I, I say, you know, keep it going, yeah. Carolyn Maloney. Don't stop there, even though you lost, you know. Yeah, keep go speaking on a truth. tour. Yeah, keep yeah. speaking truth. Go on an ageist tour. <laughs> yeah, geriatrics tour. Well, since we're talking about weird Carolyn Maloney things, can you play this clip? Uh, it's from my show because I actually shared uh, a personal story about Carolyn Maloney. And I'll just tell you this much. I feel like I may have cost her the election really? because on the Katie Helper show, I revealed how I saw her in a subway station and I almost tripped her without realizing who she was. I mean, I didn't do it. I was just sitting there. She almost tripped over my feet and I was sitting on the on the platform and she was eating a slice of pizza and then she kept eating the pizza, the slice of pizza on the on the the train. Which I just think is not something a public official, an elected official, should do. Now, maybe she so believes in service so much that she was just going from one appointment to the other. She didn't have time to eat a slice. Not but regardless, on the look, you're you're saying that this that you revealing this could have cost her the election. I well, think it may have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then we also look back and with great fondness on this moment of her addressing Congress. Let's just play this little clip. Let's look at her uh, showing her girl power, girl boss power. Uh, Back in 2001. Women and girls cannot venture outside without a burqa, which they are forced to wear. So if you're just listening to this and you're it's not an watching It's an expensive, this, heavy, uh, cumbersome garment. Carolyn Maloney is wearing is a blue burqa. her concern? Like, is yeah, she just asking to, like, subsidize them? Subsidize burqas, yeah. Yeah. And it includes so a mesh weird. panel covering the eyes. Let's be clear. This is a good we line. are at war with the Taliban strictly because they're harboring Osama bin Laden wow. and because they are involved in terrorism against the United States. Our commitment to helping the innocent people of Afghanistan must never waver. There are now 1.5 million Afghan refugees along the Pakistan border. More than half of them are women. 66,000 are pregnant. Winter is imminent. I salute the Bush administration for balancing war with compassion for dropping food. Anyway, so she praises the Bush administration and was wearing a burqa herself. And what's amazing about that clip, Katie, is that your Carolyn Maloney anecdote ends up being even more weird than my Carolyn Maloney anecdote which was that she had called Gerald Nadler senile. I mean, right. here you have a clip of her in a burqa, in a burqa. praising Bush's war in Afghanistan. Wow. Right. So that's really the ultimate that's weird That's really thing. weird. And the pizza eating thing is weird too. That is, yes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Carolyn Maloney, I, I can't wait to see what comes next. Yeah. And I'm sure, or hopefully it might end up, it might end up back here on Isn't That Weird? Yeah. Major shots fired at old men. Yeah. Well, for uh, isn't that terrible? Let's see. Uh, I have a story. It's kind of an interesting uh, history lesson also. Let's go to this story. Uh, that's from our good friends at the New York Post. Medieval monks were riddled with parasites from farming with own poop study. 
If cleanliness is next to godliness, these monks were way off the mark. It comes as no surprise that those who survived the medieval era, when villagers would dump their own doo-doo in the streets or in designated cesspits, very often did so while suffering through bouts of countless infections, particularly intestinal parasites. By contrast, a monastery just outside of town boosted running water, outhouses, and hand-washing facilities, all luxuries to the common townsfolk. Despite some seemingly unsanitary urban practices, a new archaeological study by University of Cambridge researchers has determined that it was not the ordinary people of medieval Cambridge who showed the highest rate of worms in the guts of their dead, but those who lived at the nearby Augustinian Friary. The friars of medieval Cambridge appear to have been riddled with parasites. This is the first time anyone has attempted to work out how common parasites were in people following different lifestyles in the same medieval town. Both human and pig feces were commonly used as farming manure during that time, and handling contaminated poo is a surefire way to contract intestinal worms, including roundworm and whipworm. Meanwhile, monasteries and friaries predominantly subsisted on their own organic resources and recycled their own feces for manure, ergo more infections. One possibility is that the friars manured their vegetable garden with human feces, not unusual in the medieval period, and this may have led to repeated infection with the worms. Well, to our huge uh, farmer uh, audience, it's probably the majority of the useful idiot, yeah. of the useful idiots audience is people who with uh, farming um, uh, on their mind all the time, obviously, because we provide so much farming content. Mm -hmm. You know, here's a good PSA: don't don't use human feces for your farming needs. Right. And uh, I'm also glad someone cleared up the good name of the ordinary medieval people of Cambridge. Right, the non-clergy. Uh, the non-friars, non you know, because they've been they've been lumped in with the clergy uh, right. of Cambridge and, and having all these parasites. But now we know really who who really had the parasites. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so, terrible. That is terrible. I mean, some people call organized religion parasites. Mm. We're not saying that. We're saying mm. they had parasites. <laughs> not going quite as far. Yeah. We are so excited to be talking to Noam Chomsky. Uh, he needs no introduction, but I'll introduce him anyway. He is Institute Professor Emeritus at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, in the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy, and Laureate Professor and Agnes Nelms Howery Chair in the Program of Environment and Social Justice at the University of Arizona. He is the author of more than 150 books, including The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan and the Fragility of U.S. Power, which he co-wrote with Vijay Prashad. All right, let's hear from Noam Chomsky. Professor Chomsky, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be with you. You actually uh, said something uh, in this book. You talk about the United States supporting the Mujahideen. You say that they uh, went beyond supporting the Mujahideen. They organized them. You write, they collected radical Islamists from around the world, the most violent, crazed elements they could find, and tried to forge them into a military force in Afghanistan. You could argue that would have been legitimate if it had been for the purpose of defending Afghanistan, but it wasn't. In fact, it probably prolonged the war in Afghanistan. It looks from the Russian archives as though they were ready to pull out in the early 1980s, and this prolonged the war. But that wasn't the point. The point was to harm the Russians, not to defend the Afghans. So I'm wondering how much the idea of harming the Russians as opposed to defending the Afghans, can that be applied to Ukraine? The point being to harm the Russians more than it is to defend Ukrainians? Well, 
awfully close to what's going on in Ukraine. And that's a very important model for one thing, because we have a tremendous amount of information about it. It's now well understood, both from the Russian archives, historian David Gibbs has written about this, going through the Russian archives. Actually, this was pretty well known before by top level analysts like Raymond Gardhoff, who pretty well understood, and he was in, goes way back, that the Russians realized they'd made a mistake and wanted to withdraw. The United States didn't want them to withdraw, and wanted to keep them in there. By now, we have a really definitive study of it, the Cordovas-Harrison uh, study. It's an extensive, detailed study by Cordovas, who's the UN ambassador who negotiated the withdrawal. Zelik Harrison's one of the leading Western specialists on the topic, go through in detail what happened. The way they put it is in their words, uh, the United States wanted to fight to the last Afghan, keep the Russians in to harm Russia, uh, dealing. They tried very hard to prevent the negotiations. Uh, UN finally managed to push through negotiations, which allowed the Russians to withdraw. They hadn't been defeated. It was quite stable. In fact, the situation was pretty much like in the last stages of the US uh, conquest. Uh, they around, you, can, you can't read this in the United States, it's blocked, but uh, we have good evidence that in the last couple of years of the Russian invasion, uh, they had stabilized the situation they, around Kabul in particular, uh, moved forward, especially with women's rights. Uh, women were doing what they wanted, you know, wear the clothes they wanted, you know, had, had jobs. The biggest problem they had was the US-backed Mujahideen, especially the US favorites like Hekmatyar, who would be throwing acid in their faces if they were wearing the wrong clothes. Pretty similar to what uh, the stage that the US finally achieved. Uh, actually, the best evidence about this was from the UN representative for women, Russell Basu, well-known international feminist. She's organized the International Year for Women back in 1974. She was the UN representative, especially concerned with women's rights in the last stages of the uh, Russian occupation. And she wrote about it pretty much which I just described in some detail. She submitted it to US journals, submitted it to Ms. Magazine, was finally able to publish it in Asia Times. Okay, a lot of Americans read that. Uh, it's backed up in, by other sources. Roderick Braithwaite, who's specialist in Afghanistan, was the uh, British ambassador to Moscow during all this time covered Afghanistan. He himself wrote a book about Afghanistan, but uh, he went back a couple of years later, 2006. He said, you know, people are in Kabul are, uh, regard their best years that they can remember as the late Russian years. Uh, and he says, uh, the, the figure that they admire most is Najibullah, the, the Russian imposed back to, uh, leader who was finally killed by the US-backed Mujahideen who destroyed the country after the Russians left. 
He says, maybe this is nostalgia, maybe it's real, but that's their picture after six years of U.S. rule. Well, Brzezinski, who was the most outspoken Carter's National Security Council advisor, uh, he takes credit openly for having enticed the Russians in by inducing Carter to provide military aid to the groups that were trying to overthrow the reformist Russian-backed government. He said, we enticed them in. It was a great achievement. He was asked years later, after all the destruction, do you think it was worth it? He said, of course. Maybe there's some agitated Muslims, like about a million cadavers, but uh, we managed to get the Russians out. That's uh, weakened Russia. So how can you doubt that this was one of the great achievements of my life? Well, there are people like that today. Take a look at current policy. Current US policy is to prolong the war, block negotiations, nothing. The goal is quite explicit, no secrets about it, is to weaken Russia severely, so severely that it cannot take further aggression. I think what that means for a minute. I mean, the Russians can read that. It means punishment harsher than the Versailles Treaty, which uh, was not able to prevent Germany from further aggression. Well, maybe that's not what he meant, but that's what it, those who listen to it are going to hear, just as we would if it were reversed. So the goal is weaken Russia, prolong the war, prevent negotiations, keep Americans from even knowing about the possibility. Like, how many Americans know that on the eve of the war, a couple of weeks before the war, Foreign Minister Lavrov said the issue is NATO expansion into Ukraine. Well, maybe he meant it, maybe he didn't mean it. There's a way to find out. Try. See if that's a way of avoiding the war by explicitly excluding, neutralizing uh, Ukraine, turning it to something like Austria or Mexico for that matter which can't join a hostile military alliance. Well, was it possible? We don't know. US refused, blocked every effort to try, continues right now. Americans don't know a thing about it because the, it's not official censorship. Like the government doesn't throw you into the gulag. If you talk about it, we're talking about it. You know, they're not gonna send thugs in here to arrest us, but it's, the kind of censorship that Orwell talked about 80 years ago, nothing new. Go back and read his introduction to Animal Farm, suppressed, but it was there, <laughs> came out many years later, it was found in his unpublished papers. He was describing to the people of England how unpopular ideas can be suppressed without the use of force in a free society and described how it's done in England. Now, one of the ways is just the press is owned by wealthy men who have every interest in having it suppressed. Uh, most important is if you're inculcated into the culture, like you have a good education, you just know there are certain things you don't say. You don't talk about them. That's our, our society, it's been honed to a high art.
naturally in a very free society. So you have media which encourage debate, looks as if it's open, lots of lively debate within a narrow framework of presuppositions, which are the propaganda system. You don't see them, you don't ask about them, you don't talk about them. They just set the frame in which you can talk. Some of them are so overt that they're almost comical. Like right now, if you're a respectable writer, you want to be right in the main journals. You talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You have to call it the unprovoked Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's a very interesting phrase. It was never used before. You look back at the wreck, like in Iraq, which was totally unprovoked. Nobody ever called it the unprovoked invasion of Iraq. In fact, I don't know if the term was ever used. If it was, it was very marginal. Now you look it up on Google and hundreds, thousands of hits. Uh, every article comes out has to talk about the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Why? Because they know perfectly well it's provoked. That doesn't justify it, but it was massively provoked. Uh, top US diplomats have been talking about this for 30 years. Head of the, even the head of the CIA. Yes, it's provoked and it's crazy. It's reckless. Uh, Right-wing people like Robert Gates, the Secretary of Defense under Bush, said, this is crazy what you're doing. It's reckless, provocative to invite Ukraine into NATO. No Russian leader will ever accept it. Uh, massively provoked. So therefore, we have to call it the unprovoked invasion. I mean, any good shrink could tell you what's going on. You know, it's not very profound. But the point is, a lot of it is just on the surface. Or like, what's the point of banning RT, for example? Like banning Chris Hedges and uh, statements uh, like Love Rubs, which I mentioned. Does it even, I mean, apart from the act, does it make any sense to keep Americans from knowing what the Russians are saying? Right. And the Russophobia is just out of sight. There's a recent statement by Graham Fuller, who's top figure in US intelligence for decades, focused mostly on Eastern Europe and Russia. He said in his entire career in the Cold War, he's never seen anything like the Russophobia today. It's my impression too, but it's better to hear it from him. I actually have an article that just came out today that quotes a lot of this stuff. But uh, what it's doing, look to go back to what you pointed out, it looks very much like what was called the Afghan trap. And it's pretty hard to see it, think of a different interpretation. So let's keep in there, weaken Russia severely. What happens to Ukraine? What happens to the people who are starving all over the world? And, uh, what happens if there's a nuclear a nuclear plant explosion, or if it escalates to war? Actually, it's pretty interesting to watch us read things carefully that do come out. So the Washington Post had a long, comprehensive article a couple of days ago, which they reviewed in great detail, the background for the war. Interesting article. Nothing in it about possible negotiations. It's just not on the agenda. But there are some interesting comments. Like they quote some, I've forgotten his name, some British 
military officials saying that the United States and Britain were kind of surprised by the Russian invasion because they didn't do it the American and British way. They was more restrained. Why didn't they do it our way? Like when we attack Serbia, Iraq, uh, we just destroy everything. We destroy the communication systems, the energy system, we even a limited war like Serbia, just make sure nothing functions. Why aren't the Russians doing it? I mean, Kiev is functioning. It's, uh, um, so they were quite surprised. Well, what does that mean? It means putting aside nuclear weapons, the Russians could easily escalate up to the level of a US-British style war. They might go start going after supply lines. And then you escalate, you're up the escalation ladder, it's all done. So looks like we're saying, let's go on with that and put off any hope of negotiation. Is there a hope? We don't know. You can only find out by pursuing the options that seem to arise and see if they get anywhere. If you're totally opposed to it, you don't get anywhere. One thing I was struck by in that article was when they mentioned NATO expansion, they talk about Russian officials, including Putin, talking about NATO expansion before the war. But the way it's described, it's basically dismissed as just basically these Russians complaining and not a very serious issue for them that has to be addressed. It's easy for us to say. I suppose the uh, China was uh, running a huge uh, military alliance, most aggressive military alliance in the world. And they uh, were sending advanced arms into Mexico, aiming at the United States, uh, uh, carrying out military exercises with Mexico, training them in Mexicans and advanced uh, armaments. Would we say, well, it uh, doesn't mean anything. They're not going to do anything. So who cares? Not very likely. Mexico would be blown away. I mean, take Cuba. It was very interesting. You go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy, McNamara, all recognized that there is no threat to the United States. That even if Russia has missiles in Cuba, changes nothing in the military balance. Mm. Well, they were willing to risk total war to get rid of them. Can you talk about... I mean, it seems like part of what allows this conversation to be so biased or one-sided is that people really don't know what NATO does or what NATO has done. You talk about it in, in the book. You go through various things that NATO has done, but also you talk about the gentleman's agreement that uh, was negotiated by Gorbachev, but not put into writing. Can you talk about that? There's been a lot of deceit about that. So I'd suggest that you go back to the documents, which are readily available. You can pick them up on the internet from the National Security Archive of all the documents. Clear, unambiguous, nothing to argue about. Said straight out, we will not go one inch to the east. Remember, there was something serious at stake. Gorbachev was agreeing to unification of Germany within a hostile military alliance. There's a little bit of history there. He was saying, okay, we'll agree to 
the unification of Germany, which had practically destroyed us twice, twice in the last century, will agree. But there's a quid pro quo, no farther than East Germany. It was clear, explicit, unambiguous. The first Bush lived up to it. Clinton's the one who started violating it pretty quickly, in fact. Was warned against it by just about everybody in the high diplomatic, US diplomatic service, anybody who knew anything about Russia and run through the list, expanded. The Russians didn't make too much of a fuss. Yeltsin opposed it, but he didn't do anything. In fact, as, as late as a couple of years ago, uh, Putin was asking to be for Russia to be incorporated within NATO. There was this Gorbachev proposal of the common human European home, Lisbon, Vladivostok, no military alliances, both sides co-equals, no victor, no defeated, both countries, both regions move forward, West and Europe towards social democracy. It's a very tempting prospect for Europe. It's, the US has to work hard to get them to reject it. Fortunately for Washington, uh, Putin and his total stupidity handed Washington the greatest gift it could ask for, handed him Europe on a silver platter. Uh, I mean, Macron and France, Schultz and Germany were making some initiatives towards negotiations. Instead of picking them up, Putin simply dismissed them, went on to war. Enormous cost to Russia as well. Could it, could it have worked? We don't know. Might very well. It certainly has a lot of temptations for Europe. In fact, they're suffering right now from the failure to do it, suffering seriously. In terms of the German-based system is actually declining. Probably can't continue with it. I mean, even the move to uh, renewable energy, even that requires Russian minerals. I mean, you can't cut this off and continue to function. Actually, most of the world understands this. So the United States leaders can't understand why uh, the rest of the world doesn't join us because they're not insane. I mean, they uh, did anybody uh, sanction the United States after it invaded Iraq? Did anybody cut off relations with the United States? Um, so yeah, they're keeping relations with both sides. They say, this is your war, it's not our war. They're also saying, they're also ridiculing the pronouncements of a great uh, high moral stand. Can't, can't, you can't, we have to have this peaceful world order where nobody attacks anyone else. I mean, what are they talking about? The guys who are saying that are the, have the worst record of subversion, violence, and aggression in the world. I mean, take NATO. I mean, the bombing, the attack on Serbia had no justification whatsoever. A lot of lies about that. We can go through it. It was a straight attack, humiliation of Russians, their ally. Russians weren't even informed. Uh, Russian was one of the Russian high officials was on a plane to the West. He returned right in the middle of it. 
and it was a pretty bitter attack. Libya, just destroy it. Iraq, of course, and it goes on like that. And so the rest of the world is looking at it and kind of amazed at the high-minded rhetoric that's coming out and saying, we don't want this war. You want to fight a proxy war with Russia, it's your business, but we're going to maintain relations with both sides. Even India, which is part of the quad, you know, the US run into Pacific uh, collection of nations aimed at China, but India's not going along. Well, they're part of it, but they're not doing anything. Noam, I want to read you a headline from the New York Times recently about the U U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, making a trip to Africa. And this is the headline. U.S. diplomat warns African countries against buying anything from Russia except grain and fertilizer. And when I saw that headline, it made me think of a theme you return to very often in all of your work, including your latest book, The Withdrawal, of the U.S. acting like a global mafia don, the godfather. Unfortunate, but... The mafia is a fairly good model for international relations. Uh, the US, uh, what's called the threat of China is that the China doesn't accept the orders. Europe does. Euro the US makes demands that Europe is strongly opposed to. Europeans observe them. It's all over the place. Take Iran, Europe was strongly opposed to the United, to the U.S. demolition of the Iran uh, negotiations, JCPOA negotiations, in violation of Security Council orders, incidentally. A lot of rhetoric about how they were not going to accept the U.S. sanctions, and they accepted them. They're scared of the Godfather, not without reason. The United States can throw them out of the international financial system. Uh, well, among other things, uh, Cuba, whole world's opposed to the sanctions. 100% Israel is the only country that goes along with the U.S. Last vote in the United Nations, 184 to 2, U.S. and Israel opposing the sanctions. Everyone adheres to them. You can't buy nickel from Cuba. You can't send them a syringe for a you know, for COVID, because the godfather will get angry. It's a frightening country. Look at international polls, it's the most frightening country in the world. Here, we're all sweetness and light, of course. Uh, the, and the, going back to China, they just ignore the, the orders. That's where they're constantly accused of defying the rule-based international order. It's a very interesting concept. China's calling for the UN-based international order. U.S. doesn't accept that for a very good reason. The UN-based international order rules out U.S. foreign policy explicitly. Look at the UN Charter. If anybody cares, it's the supreme law of the land in the United States, but put that aside. It says very clearly it bans the threat or use of force in international affairs, except under circumstances which are not relevant. 
Can you think of a US president who hasn't engaged in the threat or use of force? Well, obviously we can't accept the UN-based international order. So the it's kind of like the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Everyone has to talk about the rule-based international order and how wonderful it is. Uh, obvious question arises about a rule-based order. Where do the rules come from? Washington. So it's a fine thing. We set the rules, you obey them. Uh, you want to be a respectable intellectual commentator, writer for the journals. You laud the rule-based international order. You condemn the Chinese for calling for the UN-based international order. Not that they're nice guys. They do a lot of rotten things, including violation of international law, but that's not the issue. That's not what bothers the United States. U.S. supports countries that do far worse. Doesn't care one way or another. Crucial fact is they're too big to be pushed around. They do not accept U.S. orders. They just go ahead. That's intolerable. And you go over in your in the book how, and this is something I think a lot of people don't know, how explicitly the United States is not subjected to the world uh, international law, even the ones it signs on to. That's almost a joke. I mean, the U.S. is the only country that has rejected a world court decision with charging the United States with basically international terrorism. United States didn't like the judgment. This is under Reagan, just pulled out of the court. At the time, it had two uh, allies, Albania and Libya. And they've since accepted it, but the US alone. It was even vetoed a resolution in the Security Council calling on states to observe international law. After the Serbia bombing, Yugoslavia brought a charge against NATO to the world court. Uh, uh, the United States pulled down. All the other NATO powers accepted. The United States pulled down. The court accepted the US pull out because it was based on legal grounds. Serbia had mentioned, Yugoslavia had mentioned the word genocide. The United States is self-exempt from the Genocide Convention. Uh, it's uh, after 40 years, it was finally ratified, but, but with an exception inapplicable to the United States. We have to have the right to commit genocide. Well, the rules of the court are if a country doesn't accept a jurisdiction, you can't try them. So they let the United States out. Uh, the United States almost never ratifies international conventions. And when it does, there's almost always an exception, whatever it may be. It's just separate. We're too powerful um, to be bound by anybody else. In fact, that's you can find statement after statement by that at high level saying we're we're just too good, too wonderful, too powerful. We can't be bound by these rules. Incidentally, it's no U.S. invention. The British were the same when they were running the world. Noam, I want to ask you about the student debt issue. As we are speaking, Biden has just canceled up to $10,000 in federal student debt. 
your thoughts on this, people obviously on the left think it doesn't go far enough, but then you have people saying, why should I be, why should I as a taxpayer be paying anything for someone else's burden that they took on themselves? The discussion as usual is missing the point. Higher education should be free, like it is in most countries. Mexico, Germany, Finland, it's kind of like um, an ordinary right. In fact, if you look at the United States, it was virtually free at one time. When I was a student, I was a student in the 40s. GI Bill of Rights not only gave free education to huge numbers of people who would never have gone to college, but actually subsidized them. Of course, it was no women, no blacks. So not that it was wonderful, but because it was serving in the army. And, uh, but even, I mean, I went to an Ivy League college. Tuition was so low, I had a scholarship. So with a small scholarship and working at home, I could go to college basically free. Well, the United States was a much poorer country then. The college tuitions and all the rest went out of sight, basically as part of the whole neoliberal attack on rights. So the real question should be, why does anybody have to go to debt to go to school? It should be, it's, it's good for the people, it's good for the country. I mean, the GI Bill was very beneficial to the country. These guys who managed to go to college contributed a lot should have included women and should have included uh, blacks, but it's like everything was segregated. And, and I think that's true of, we should ask the right questions. Uh, maybe you, know, you can argue about whether this particular decision could have been done better, but the real point is the issue shouldn't even come up. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. Yeah, listen, I could listen and know him talk all day. He's the most uh, influential intellectual in my life uh, from a very young age. So what a pleasure to talk to him and hear his latest thoughts. Really great, great and brave being attacked once again, even being attacked by so-called leftists because this whole Russia-Ukraine thing has has really broken a lot of people's brains if there's one guy who does not care about being attacked it's it's that guy right there Noam Chomsky spent a career I mean when he came out against Vietnam yeah it was such a fringe position to be against the Vietnam War and uh he welcomes the contempt and that's a model for all of us I think yeah to take on popular positions that are right he was almost prosecuted there was going to be a trial against him that's right he talks about it in this book Mm mm-hmm which I highly recommend. It's a fast read because it's basically it's conversations between him and Vijay Prashad. Yeah. So if you want to see the full interview with Noam, make sure you uh, join the Substack. That's usefulidiots.substack.com. That's right. And we'll see you next week. Yeah. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. 
Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. <laughs>